0: LifeWay Lifeway. Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Chandler Benoit, here with my co-host, Todd Adkins. What? It's been a while. It's been a while
1: since I did that. that. I didn't want to. We have a very, we have a special guest today. All of our guests are special, of course. Um, I'm a little more reserved. I've already probably um, said some theological things that were inappropriate or incorrect. Um, I think with my mouth, that's all I have to say. So in the banter preceding this podcast, hopefully I did not commit any uh, or make any heretical statements. Um, but why don't you introduce our guests? And- <laughs> I, well, that's why I was a little reserved in my... I, I get it. I was confident. I today. get it.
0: Well, today we're joined by John Mark Comer, who is the pastor for teaching and vision at Bridgetown Church. And he's also the author of a few books, including Garden City and his latest, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. John Mark, how are you doing today?
2: Doing great. It's a it's a Monday when we are recording. So I'm a bit tired from <laughs> yesterday, but I'm good in spirit. Recharging.
0: Now we were talking before this. We we're kind of so we're in Nashville. You're up in the Pacific uh, Northwest, and we were just saying the difference is even between hey, reopening of churches kind of a different region. So as we kind of jump in, just share with share with us kind of what you guys you know what services have looked like for the past year at Bridgetown.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, because the whole thing is politicized and Portland is a very far left city, even though our COVID rates are very low, everything, you know, is very shut down. Mm -hmm. So we were like pivot to, and our church is a little, um, you know, it's like a a young kind of urban church, but we're actually a little kind of anti-digital church stuff so um it's not that we were behind the times it's more like we were intentionally attempting to subvert the times so mm-hmm. that made made us not well positioned like we did not have a bunch of cameras and all those apparatuses and we had no online you know s- church stuff so we had to pivot really fast and for about six months it was like a pre-record that was just so contrary to like the ethos of our church and in particular like how if gatherings are more than just a presentation of songs and sermons, but if they're actually encounters with the living God and moments to like even operate in the manifestations of the Spirit, like prophecy and healing, how do you do that? You know, in a pre-record and when you're not together. So, about six months in, I think in September, we were able to shift to a live stream, even though it's just like you know, 25 people in the room. And that was a game changer, and we've been doing the live stream since. And now we're kind of up to about eighty or ninety people in the room, social distancing, and we're hoping to start reopening next month on the one-year anniversary of not gathering at all as a church. It'll be very limited, you know. If we can get a third of our church in three or four gatherings on a Sunday, that'll be that'll be really good. So we're not back back, but at least something even people that were really liberal and cautious about everything. Now, most of them, not all, but most of them are like, all right, we're just ready to come back. We just want to be (laughs) at church, you know?
0: Yeah. Something you said there and you're, you were even describing, Hey, we weren't behind the times we were being intentional because we wanted to make sure like kind of elevate the gathering for what you believed it was. And I saw somebody uh, tweet this out the other day, something along the lines of like the church is not a broadcast. It's a body. And just hearing what you said there just resonated a lot with me. So I know a lot of, a lot of people are trying to wrestle with, Hey, we are only online or we do, you know, live stream is the way that we're reaching uh, our people. Maybe we're even reaching new people, but for you, as you head back into you guys have hopefully that date of, you don't want to go past the one year anniversary, hopefully (laughs) of, of being able to reopen kind of, how are you guys handling that? Like, Hey, where since you guys were so intentional about not having, the 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 live stream or all the cameras before. What difference being in a year of of live stream and pre-recorded? What are you gonna take with you and what are you gonna leave behind?
2: yeah well i mean um for us live streams uh, it's a concession not a conviction and i'm grateful for it. it's the lesser of evils if the other option is like we just don't meet as a church at all for two years or something then uh live stream is the lesser of evils and thank god for the internet and cameras and technology but if anything a year of kind of live stream online church stuff has just deepened our conviction that the future of the church is more analog than digital. It's atoms, not bits. It's embodied people around tables, not cameras of people on stages. So that's just our opinion. I know a lot of people think the opposite. A ton of people. I was on a call with somebody this morning, a really smart thinker, who's like the entire future of the church. is hybrid church. It's church there on Sunday and live stream gatherings. That's fine. I actually... Uh, that could be right. But I, I think that not only is that not the future, I think it's actually incredibly dangerous because um, it just, you know, I'm not against like people, you can't define success as numeric, num- how many people you quote reach. If that, that is not how Jesus defined success in ministry. And, um, it's not bad to have the message of your church, depending on what your message is, is it actually the gospel? Is it actually a call to discipleship? If that goes out far and wide, that's beautiful. But is a live stream church online, is that the best way to do that? Like the gift of something like a podcast is you can get content out there and a lot of people can listen to it without it replacing or subverting the church gathering. The problem with live stream is it just requires so little. You can like put it on your phone while you're walking your dog and folding your laundry and making pancakes for your kids and reading the newspaper, you know, there's a, such a low bar of entry and the church should cost you a little something like David said, not to go old allegorical, but David said, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Mm -hmm. And so there's something about actually like coming to worship God in your body And the world is becoming so disembodied, and I think that's part of the problem right now. I don't think that's part of the solution. I think the solution is how do we get back to our bodies, back to community, in real life, in a place, grounded in our cities, preaching the gospel to our cities, beating up on the idols of our city. You know, if you're just thinking about the online reach, you can really temper what you say you can kind of, it has to go to this kind of Netflix level where you're not actually talking about the reality of your context, your city, your town, your suburb. You're kind of just keeping everything at this like Netflix kind of level that's applicable to anyone online. you know. So yeah, I mean, my, I think I'll watch, uh, tons of churches will come out of this and they'll think that hybrid church is the future, digital church is the future, maybe it is. But I think I'm gonna watch it and see what happens and see what the fallout is. Like you look at what happened with the secret sensitive movement and the attractional megachurch movement of the eighties and nineties, tons of people were reached, quote, but it created a nationwide, and it was more complex than that. Some of it had to do with how the gospel was truncated after World War II, and the focus on conversion rather than discipleship and you know the broader historical for- forces. But what it created was a nationwide low discipleship culture Mm -hmm. in the church. And that created an entire generation of Gen X millennials that did not have a robust enough discipleship in Jesus to stand against the aggressive ride of secularism. And so you're losing the, the church is just leaking millennials like, like crazy because this kind of low bar of entry self helpy kind of attractional, come to church on Sunday when you feel like it thing, just did not create a milieu that could stand against the rise of secularism. And I think that digital church is the same dynamic, but worse.
1: Okay, so I remember now the last time we talked where I was like, I really like this guy. There was so much I had in common with this guy that I didn't know, and I was so shocked. And now I sit here again. Um, the difference would be, I would just, uh, I would just put it in a tweet form and say, baptism, we moved the bab- we made baptism, the finish line of the starting line. Yeah. <clears throat> we live in a cut flower culture, which you and I probably know where, you know, where that comes from. It's not about, it's a European Judeo Christian ethic, uh, ethnic thing, but, but, but the reality is we are living in that same place where the uh the maps and scope and sequence pathways of intentional discipleship of intentional development and hear me say the program wasn't it it was the process it was about the process and we have lost we have lost that and that cannot be done simply in a digitized manner. yeah. Um, And people, when they look at us, when they look at me in particular and and see my whiteboards and see all those, all all the things that I spit out frameworks all the time, uh, they know that we have ministry grid and that it is high tech, but it also has to be high touch. Each one of those maps, each one of those pathways that we create has to come with a guide of conversation to lead you through general implication, personal implication, application, implementation. and has to be done in the context of a relationship or it doesn't go anywhere. Um, I love, love, love what you said about, uh, you know, this costing me nothing because it is a disciplined approach. It is a posture at which you come to worship. And I noticed in myself, in my wife, who is more godly and holy than I am, That over the course of time, on a Sunday morning, uh, when, before our church started coming back live, um, you start to do things that you normally would not do. When we first started this, and our kids weren't paying attention, it was immediately, you know, force them them to, you know, watch this experience, whatever. And six months later, we're, you know, getting up to go get uh, another Nespresso or we are folding something or it's just, and we slip into that yeah. versus an intentional approach. And I, I, I just love, 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 uh, Everything you said and really want to close in prayer right now.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, before we uh, do that, please, I, do have I some mean I, to ask. <laughs> sure. And I mean no judgment with that. Like of sure. And frankly, I'm grateful some other people will test that out. We'll see what happens. But no no, I mean judgment in the sense of I don't think that's right, but not judgment in the sense of contempt or moral superiority. I I could be way off, but that's my I think the pendulum I think
1: people are riding that train where we tend to react in the church versus respond and reaction we all know is an emotional thing and versus a thoughtful response yeah you know everybody in marketing knows that marketing's really about emotional that's how you make choices that's how you make decisions yeah yeah i'm afraid we're we're doing that in the church we're we're doing Mm. it in our churches and i'm guilty of it too i'm not throwing rocks i'm just saying hey haven't we been down this road enough uh to look back Even in our own personal lifetimes, you know, we're, it's not like we're three days older than Moses or anything, but we can look back a few decades and go, Hey, you know, we've seen the pendulum switch back and forth. And, um, man, I just feel like everything has not changed guys. Yeah. We, we, we can't say, we can't scream. Everything's changed. You're all going to be left behind and beat into that fear. And say you gotta get onto this or you gotta yeah. buy this or do this. Um, sorry, there is there is
2: yeah, there is that thing with Jesus where this could be wrong, but some argue that when the crowds got too big, Jesus would intentionally do and say things to wean them out and make them smaller. If it's that you must eat my flesh and drink my body, and then he doesn't explain himself,
0: <laughs> everybody's like, "I'm out on that one." <laughs> and <laughs> people leave the, out there.
2: Yeah, so yeah, I mean, that, could be wrong, but yeah. that, that could be not the right interpretation. But I, I kind of think it is. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we could talk anyway, church
0: trends but, and yeah. Let's and do your five. Let's do while, it. But this is this a it. great <laughs> discussion, John Mark. Let's hop in here with this one. And it's who or what has been the greatest leadership influence in your
2: life? Like, are you thinking person, book, concept? Let's go. Let's go. Um, one of each. One of each. One of each. <laughs> well, we um, maybe, maybe all three. I would say the OG book, "The Emotionally Healthy Church" by Pete Cazero. Um, extraordinary impact on me. I read it when we were church planning. I read it when I was like twenty-three or twenty-four years old remember it was like on rob bell's reading list like forever ago back when he was a pastor and uh forever ago and i'm like that's a weird title and i read it this would have been gosh i don't know a long time ago and i remember thinking it was great and then it literally went in one ear and out the other. I did every single thing he said not to do over the next 10 years of my ministry. And then I, I came to, not 10 years, however many years, I came back to it on my sabbatical in my early 30s and was just a wreck. I just absolutely was burned out, made a bunch of mistakes, felt like a failure. And I reread it and I realized, oh, I, I, <laughs> I did every single thing he said not to do. And it had an extraordinary impact on me. And some of the combinations of his work around emotional health, around embracing your limits, which is crucial for a pastor because um, pastoral work is bottomless. There, there is no end to it. So if you don't self-select the limits, it will literally take you into the black hole because you're never done. There's never, ever, ever, ever a moment when you're done. And so um, if you don't set limits, the church will attempt to set them for you, which means there will be none. That work was crucial. His work around Sabbath um, and the role of rest in the life of a leader and a disciple, utterly transformative. And also his role around family of origin and the ways that our families imprint upon us and then sabotage our leadership. And the way, you know, his saying that um, Jesus may live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones the number of in particular successful lead pastors that are leading out of father wounds is just staggering, absolutely staggering. And, um, and then finally his work around self-awareness, I think you would call it know yourself to know God and realizing that most of the greatest leadership mistakes I've ever made have been a lack of self awareness of my shadow side that's rooted in my family of origin and my deepest fears. And um, and that as much as I adore biblical theology and exegetical Bible teaching, exegeting through Romans is likely not going to do the deep work in my shadow, self-awareness, emotional health, family of origin stuff that is sabotaging my best attempts to lead and pastor well. So I would say that book, which is really more than a book, it's like a kind of ecosystem of ideas and practices and values through Scazzaro and others. Was um, very formative for me as a leader.
0: You know, I read. Uh, I was reading through your book, Garden City, alongside emotionally healthy leader at the same mm-hmm. time, and it was just like oh great, getting hit from the left and the right of like you need to rest, you need the Sabbath, and just putting like you said, it's just deep into that ecosystem. And I know a lot of people who have read both those books, and we've even had discussions around. Hey, we need to set limits. We need to set boundaries. We need to rest and Sabbath but it's kind of like you said, you read the book and then for 10 years or along those lines, you kind of live opposite of that. So yeah. what was it that led you to take what you read and actually put it into practice? Failure. Hmm. Was there anything specific, like one failure or just can you dive into that for us?
2: Yeah. I mean, I mean, no, the multiple failures. <laughs> I mean, that. Not- not failure in the sense of scandal, um, by the, by the grace of God. And and I understand that happens to a lot of guys, but just, um, yeah, I think the next, what's the second question? Isn't your second question like, what's your greatest leadership failure or whatever?
0: Favorite leadership yeah. failure. Oh, favorite <laughs> leadership Okay. <laughs> so let's we go there. We
2: go there. Let's do a let's question. Let's do a question two because it's the same. It's yeah. it's the story behind the answer to what you just asked. love it. Yeah. So basically, I planted a church young with a team of people. I was on this team, uh, which is now Bridgetown Church. I've been here 18 years and just about. And you know, five, six, seven years in, I'm in my late twenties. I became the lead pastor. The church grew really fast by about a thousand people a year for about seven years straight. So I'm 28, 29 years old and leading a very large church. We are multi-site at that point. And I was nowhere even close to mature enough for that job. I was dangerous in that, you know, I, I, um, I, I had a decent kind of teaching gift That could anchor that position and the church. I'm sure that had to do at some level, you know, some level that wasn't just that, but um, of what God used to grow the church. But I was nowhere even close to mature enough, self-aware enough, emotionally healthy enough, wise enough, tough enough, emotionally resilient enough for that kind of a leadership role. And, um, one of the great mistakes I made was, um, there's a ton. I could, I could list tons of failures. I made one of the major ones I made was idealism. You know, there's that great Bonhoeffer line in his book life together where he writes about community and he writes that he who loves the ideal of a community rather than the community itself becomes the destroyer of the community, even though his intentions may be ever so pure and noble because he he holds the community and himself and God to this unrealistic standard. He becomes judge, jury, and executioner and he actually destroys the very community that he wanted to create in the name of idealism. You look at the greatest genocide in human history, the Russian Revolution, and what's easy to forget as an American, in particular if you're from a conservative culture, is that communism started out as this incredibly compelling vision of a society of equality and justice. It was it was utopian, it was idealistic. They attempted to do it without God, but the long-term goal was equality and justice and it ended up becoming a parody of itself. Utopia turned into dystopia and it became the greatest genocide in human history. And this is what happens when idealistic intellectual leaders try to create utopian societies apart from God and don't honor the reality of sin and human brokenness and woundedness. So I brought not you know communist atheist idealism, <laughs> but zealous kind of enneagram type one pastoral you know millennial idealism to the church and i tried to whiteboard the church you know what i mean i literally would sit in front of this whiteboard with a couple of other really smart leaders and we had all these ideas and i wanted to change the church and innovate and what could we do with this many people and missional and justice and spirit of god and church around we had all these ideas and and most of them were incredibly well visioneered and taught and executed from the pulpit and didn't work well at all and actually caused division more than unity. And I realized I wasn't, I was treating the church like a, like an ideological theory, like to put a whiteboard to put my ideological theories on or idealistic theories on not like a living, breathing body and family with a heritage, with pain, with potential, with limitations, with a a spiritual story and destiny and God's kingdom in our city and um, it just didn't work and so that was an incredible learning time for me our church ended up disbanding for all good reasons no bad blood I ended up in our small much smaller church in the city where I'm at now and love it which is such a good fit for me but I realized that the church is not a lump of clay that you as the pastor just to get to write your theory of church and your value system and your idealism on it's a living breathing body and family and you have to honor their heritage and same with yourself as the meantime as i was trying to terraform our church to this idealistic ideal i was trying to terraform myself to this idealistic ideal and i was trying to be this leader of leader of leaders extroverted type a tough like all these things, and I was learning the hard way. I'm actually not really wired, probably even to be a lead pastor long-term and definitely not to be the lead pastor of a church that size, of a multi-site kind of church. That's not who I am. I'm sensitive and introverted and bookish and thoughtful, Like, and either other areas where I can serve really well. That's not probably not the main area or the area at all. And so I, just really learning to accept the reality of who the church was and who I was. And that was the greatest failure slash that was my invitation. Once I got to that spot, I'm in my early thirties and on one level was totally successful. And on the other level, I'm a wreck. I'm burned out beyond belief. I'm grouchy all the time. My spiritual life is shot, not like by sin, just by like, I can't hear God, feel God. I'm exhausted. Prayer is just like, not life-giving you know I have this relational drama around me because I'm not emotionally healthy enough to lead well my marriage and family again no infidelity or no scandal but I'm just a grouchy burned out not present dad I'm addicted to my <laughs> I was just failure it was just mm-hmm. like I realized holy cow you can be a success as a pastor and a failure as a disciple of Jesus and even as a human being and that was that was terrifying for me and, and it, well not terrifying it was It was a wake up call for me and such a gift of God. And now, even though that was one of the hardest times in my life, I just thank God for it.
0: There's hearing this. Thank you for for your honesty in that. And man, even just the humility to say, hey, I wasn't wired that way. So I know that I would thrive in this area as well. I think there's so much self-awareness there that I think a lot of us need to to let the Lord do some work. And it sounds like he, he revealed that to you. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I know, I know there's, um, I know when, when you're sharing that story, I, I automatically thought of somebody who, you know, just came out of seminary who has all these ideas of yes. what they want church to
2: be. Like I read, that was, this, that, was you know, me, that was me. That was me. I had so, just come out of seminary. I'd gone through all the missional stuff. I'd read all the books and I was like, <laughs> great, we're going to make the books happen. Yep. So um,
0: what, what advice would you give to somebody who, I mean, there's, there's good ambition in there. Like there is, it's not all bad, and, and you want to bring what you've learned and you're excited about into into that church. But you you said, hey, instead we need to understand that this is a body of people who have hurts, who have you mentioned the heritage. So what would you say to somebody who's who maybe even stepping into that or, or they know that they are still living in that? What advice would you give to be like? Here's how to lean into the actual body of the church. And not to try to make it your own idealized version of it, but understand it better so that you can lead in that way.
2: Well, I mean, I think first it's important. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of people aren't idealistic, but a lot of leaders are, and um, a lot of seminarians or post seminarians are, I think it's important to realize that no church is anywhere close to as awesome as it looks from the outside that churches of all stripes and sizes, even the healthy, mature, well-led ones are just full of issues and problems and weaknesses and inconsistencies because we're full of humans and humans are full of problems and issues and weaknesses and inconsistencies. Myself, a 120% included. And um, you know, people often point to Acts two as like the early church and this church was extraordinary. We wanna be like this early church. And I, I always like, just wanna encourage people like, Uh, Acts 2 is one chapter in a 28 chapter story. Keep reading. Acts 2 is the honeymoon stage. That same church, yes, extraordinary generosity, community, power of God, but that same church that in Acts 2 has the favor of the people is being killed and persecuted a few chapters later. There's racism in the church. There's classism. There's income inequality. There's debates over theology. There's confusion over God's will. There's the death of leaders. There's leadership splits. All of that is in the book of Acts in the same church in Jerusalem. <laughs> and that doesn't make the church in Jerusalem less beautiful and compelling. It just means like, you know, I read this book the other day. And it was really good about kind of neuroscience and spiritual formation. But it was written by this ex-discipleship pastor reading between the lines. It sounds like he was fired from a mega Church, who's now in this house church. And, our, and it was a great book. It had some great things to say gave it to a few of our leaders. But it was so clear that this is somebody who was wounded by one church and is in the honeymoon phase of his house church. I've been living in a home community for twelve years or whatever. It's beautiful. I think everybody should live that way. It is so not idealistic. It is so hard. There are so many aspects of it that are annoying, you know? And I'm like, oh, you're you're still in the honeymoon phase. you're still <laughs> you still think that like if you just get church smaller, everything will be awesome. And I'm like, I, I'm pretty sure that's not real life. <laughs> so I think the first the first thing a seminary needs is a seminary, post seminary, is like a, a real, a hard dose of kind of real life, like recognize that idealism is dangerous and it can actually result and a kind of violence in leadership, not physical violence, but where you kind of just don't honor people's integrity. Then, I mean, think things like listening are really important, asking questions, what's the story of this community? What do you feel this community has to offer the broader ecosystem of the church in the city? What do you think the future of our community is? Not thinking through book lens or church theory lens or ideal, just like asking people in the church, leaders in the church, how do you start I love that line from Alan Scott, your destiny is hidden in your history. So like, what's the the history of your city or your town or your suburb? What's the history of the land that your church is on? What's the history of, how did your church start? What's the history of your people? Who are your founders? Who are the fathers and mothers and patriarchs and matriarchs of this family? And asking questions about that and then just waiting. I wish somebody had just told me and I wouldn't have listened to them if they had, (laughs) but I wish somebody had told me in my early twenties, I was so ambitious, I was so eager, Ego driven, and I was in such a rush to be in leadership. I wish somebody had told me that leadership is good, but it is—it is a form of suffering. The last thing you should do is be in a hurry to have more leadership, you know, because it is—it is a form of suffering. It comes with an extraordinary emotional cost. And the the younger you are, the more immature you are, the more mistakes you'll make, the harder it will be. And the more that emotional cost will ham- hamper your family, your marriage. So just be patient. Tuck under some leaders that you love. Be grateful that there are leaders over you because all you see is they have more power or platform or whatever. What you don't see is the cost to going in, what goes into having that position and the level of criticism they get, the emotional weight that they carry to preach the gospel and do these things. And that will come in time as God's call in your life unfolds, but don't be in a hurry for it, you know? Don't be, it's like the the young soldiers and like the the stereotype of a World War II movie, you are like itching to get to war. And then there's like the seasoned veterans who are like, you have no idea what it is that you're in such a hurry to get to. And you're lying on your age test because you really don't (laughs) wanna miss it. And we're just here like you. This is something like you should not be in any rush for this. It's hard. And I don't mean to paint like a morose picture of leadership, but I do think that leadership is a form of suffering and love. I think that's what Paul would say. I've been really enamored by Paul's pastoral theology. And he seems to see leadership in particular in two Corinthians as a form of vicarious suffering. Like you're not suffering like for atonement, but you are in the in the same way that Christ let death and pain into his body so that life and healing could come to the world. You let death and pain at some level into your heart in order to release life and blessing to your church. And there there's something to that. You are participating in the sufferings of Christ. That's what leadership is. And that maybe sounds more morose. There's also reward with it and honor. And it's such a gift. But I, I kind of think we need less idealism around it.
0: Hmm. That's like the commencement speech at a seminary. just To, <laughs> just,
2: be right there. <laughs> oh, to which I have never once been asked to give. <laughs> uh. Well, okay. So I,
1: I want to ask a question. Uh, it's actually the, that third question to go back to. Um, and that is, so what book would you gift yourself as a young leader? But in my opinion, um, one of the things I want to hear from you is what book, but then how would you read that book? Uh, because, you know, young leaders, uh, hopefully are reading a lot Yeah, and they think they know how to read books. I mean, you know, it's a pretty simple concept we learn as children and we go all the way through, but you know, unless you've read Adler, how to read a book, you may not know how to read a book, but in particular with what posture yeah. uh, and how would you approach said book?
2: uh yeah i mean i would just probably say the same book the emotionally healthy church so again that's his oldest one he's famous for the newer ones like emotional spirituality and emotional leader which are wonderful of course read all of them if you can but my favorite still that that first one although his, his emotional leader book is fantastic as well um so i would recommend that the other book that i give a lot to young leaders that's really short and easy to read is The Way of the Heart by Henry Nouwen, which is all about kind of the desert fathers and mothers as a paradigm for leadership in a secular age. And it's very short and very powerful. Um, So probably those two books. uh, And then, yeah, as far as how to read them, books like that, you definitely don't wanna just sit down and read it. I mean, start that way. I would sit down and read it, and then I would get some other leader friends and I would all read it together <laughs> slowly and prayerfully. And I'd process it, take notes, highlight, write things down, and then I'd verbally process it with other people. And then the third thing I would do is see how you can start habituating the key ideas in those books into your real life. And with emotional Healthy Church in particular, there's some very like low-hanging fruit, like you should... You could start therapy or spiritual direction you could start the practice of sabbath you could start regular times of silence and solitude there are some some key not just ideas but practices in those books that you at a young age could start to habituate in your life so i think that's what i'd say read it just sit down and read it they're both easy reads then i would get some friends together read it talk about it pray over it do an overnight retreat whatever And then I would sit down and like literally the piece of paper, figure out how to habituate it. I'm going to see a therapist every other Thursday. I'm going to practice Sabbath. I'm going to do a monthly silence and solitude retreat, whatever it is. So no,
1: in ruthless hurry, you talk about, you know, spiritual disciplines are so important to helping us feel spiritually alive. And I know as a young leader, and even if I'm honest, um, which has come up more than one time on this podcast, Uh, by the way, but if I'm, if I'm honest, uh, you know, there are some spiritual disciplines that are easier for me than others. Yes. What's important. What's the importance of, you know, as young leaders, I thought, you know, discipline leads to death. The last thing I want to be, I want to be alive. Do you want me to be spiritually alive? Release me from this mundane stuff that I've been doing for years, or I've been told to do for years. And yes, I do those. And I check the box and what does it really, what does it really matter? So Help yeah me understand the connection between those things
2: well okay so i think we need a healthy balance between what some call upstream disciplines and and downstream disciplines and structured disciplines and spontaneous disciplines what i mean by that by um, downstream disciplines there are some spiritual disciplines that based on your personality and your preferences will just come easily and joyfully to you. So me as an introvert, like morning silence and solitude is like if I was an angry secular atheist, I would still probably start my morning with like quiet mindfulness app and you know reading or whatever it's just like it's you know i just i'm an introvert and i like to i need a lot of space to think and process so that's really life-giving for me um but living in community the idea of sharing a weekly meal with the same group of people that does not sound fun to me a lot of the time you know what i mean i'm just, i'm not i'm not uh i'm relational but i'm not super social You know, I don't want to just like hang out with groups of people. That's not fun for me. It's stressful for me. I have some non-neurotypical stuff like sensory processing issues where lots of noise and stuff will often like stress me out. So that's really an upstream discipline for me, but it is actually something I powerfully and strongly need. And I will never reach a high level of maturity without that. My wife is the exact opposite, you know? And so for her, the move is toward solitude. And for me, the move is toward community. So the the reality is we need both. So you need a steady diet of, of spiritual disciplines where you just come alive in God. So for me, that is quiet contemplative prayer and spiritual reading. Like, I mean, I I could literally just sit around and read mystics and do contemplative quiet prayer for days and just love my life, you know? And so I do a lot of that. Like my kind of rule of life is full of kind of reading and quiet contemplative prayer and walks in nature and silence and solitude. But then we also need, like a form of kind of resistance training and think about if you go to the gym and you only do what's easy you're never going to grow so you have to like do things that actually push back and the hardest things are the areas where you're the weakest so there are other aspects for me like serving the poor like living in community like public like confession of sin to other people that are way harder for me but they're like resistance training i need them to grow and to mature into Christ-likeness. so all that to say you need a blend and your blend might be like 80 20 it might be 80 percent of your spiritual disciplines are just you love it you can't wait and you're finding life with god and then 20 percent is like man this is a discipline and it's hard and i'm i'm tapping into my deepest level of will and desire to become like jesus because this thing doesn't sound fun and um then the second thing is you need a balance of, sp- of structured and spontaneous so there's like i don't care if you're michael jordan you never you you know there's no formation without repetition and you never graduate beyond the basics so some of the basic spiritual disciplines of you know reading scripture morning prayer church on sunday these are just like i don't care how mature or self aware or enlightened or educated or post whatever you are you like we all need this and then so there's there's a level of just like i don't i just get up in the morning at the same time and i always will read scripture and i will always do some things and i'll always go to church But then there's also the spontaneous where we should also constantly be asking questions like, God, what are your invitations to me in this season? And that could be a specific kind of relationship. It could be a specific form of prayer for a season. It could be a season of reading on a certain subject. It could be, honestly, for me, I'm in a little weird season. I feel like the spirit is calling me to not read much right now, which for me goes against my natural inclination. So because there's some stuff that I'm dealing with my life. So like that healthy blend of structured, and spontaneous, where there's just some things that are literally in our schedule and we always do. And then we're constantly asking the question, God, what, what's your invitations to me in this season? And how do I say yes to you? How do I respond to you? How do I follow the move of the spirit and what you're calling me into this day, this week, this next three month period?
0: It's very helpful. Well, last question here, John Mark, if you could teach a course on any topic, what would it be? To leaders, to to anyone,
2: probably right now, I would say the desert tradition, the the psychology of the desert fathers and mothers, and contemplative prayer, and its implications for spiritual formation and a leadership development. Break that down. <laughs> um. So there there's a there's a thinker i've been living in his ideas a lot lately named abagrius aponticus fourth century desert father he's kind of turkish is mentored by basil the great and a couple of the luminaries of that era goes into the desert when he realizes he's tempted to have an affair and um, is scared of that goes into the desert and becomes this just brilliant mind and he and many others interpreted Matthew four and Luke four, and the the narrative of Jesus temptation with with the devil, which is such a fascinating text and for years, that's been like a little obtuse to me, what is that? And the temptations are interesting temptations. They're not like go murder this person or go have this affair or go kill somebody, you know, they're, they're really subtle and really sophisticated and he's using scripture. He interpreted that to be the desert solitude is the place where we go to fight evil inside of us and outside of us. And that the devil primarily comes to us through what they called logos mind Greek or thoughts or thought patterns or the flow of our mind stream. And that our primary fight is with kind of the lies and the thoughts of the enemy in our mind. And we answer him not by obsessive thoughts in response, but by just turning our mind away to truth. And that what Jesus is doing in quoting scripture is not like a magic talesman with the Bible. It's refusing to get caught up in the inner dialogue and instead turning his mind to truth. And so you could argue that what Jesus is doing in John fifteen, his whole thing on abiding, his whole thing that in progressive circles is increasingly unpopular, that Jesus seems to see say that everything is about your internal life, like wash the inside of the cup first, and then and then the outside will take care of itself. And if you interpret that internal life to be kind of the flow of your consciousness, the flow of your mind stream, the logosma as Evagrius would call it, um, and curating that with God being like the primary way that we both abide and get free of afflictive thoughts and obsessive rumination and emotions and attachments and desires that sabotage our capacity to live in love and peace and move us toward what the ancients called serenity. Um, I, I think that would be really, there, there is some stuff there in the Christian contemplative tradition on consciousness the flow of thoughts the relation between thoughts emotions desires the way that attachments are at the root of our spiritual deformation and sin and how we get free of those things and become people of love Um, there's some stuff in there that i think would have extraordinary implications for leaders and people
0: well, we'll be expecting that course in about, you know, six to eight months, right? Sure, man. Be on. <laughs> well, John Mark, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be with us today and just walk through the five leadership questions. And thank you for listening. We hope this has been helpful to you and your leadership. If it has, you can head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review so other leaders like yourself can find the podcast and we'll see you next time.